Hello and welcome to the first episode of the BV podcast for the month of April 2023. Welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And welcome from me, Terry Bennett. And in this first episode, we will have some letters. And Giles Simpson gives a preview of the forthcoming Spring Countryside show. I talked to Andrew Livingstone about the recent oil spill in Poole Harbour and the longer-term implications of that. And Lily Smith enthuses about her Oxford Sandy and Black Pigs. But first, here's Laura Hitchcock with her editor's letter. Is it just me, or does March seem to have been just one step too far? We weathered the winter with its relentless rolling onslaught of bad news, and March started with optimism. We all turned our faces to the sun, feeling that perhaps things were finally brightening. But no, silly, that was just a lull. The punches keep on rolling. The national and international stage news is perennially worrying, unsolvable and incomprehendingly big. Here at BV Towers, we've been forced into a new car purchase and our son in America has had a traumatic couple of weeks. Parenting from across the world is hard when what he needs most is someone just to pop in, put the kettle on, share the load for a bit. And like every other household, there are personal bubbles that insist on suddenly popping. And yet, as always, I look for the silver lining. The sun is shining. We've been shortlisted for a major national award as regional publication of the year. Spring is finally upon us and with it comes a new sense of energy and hope. I try to count the small daily wins. I watch the imperceptible greening of the hedgerows, the bright scattering of yellow primroses and celandines as Dorset wakes up. On a walk this month, we both stopped and gaped at countless skylarks overhead, all simply shouting larkswares at us, no doubt, but we were thrilled nonetheless. Then it hammered down with rain, but I'm keeping it positive. Did I mention we've been shortlisted for a national award? I'll leave you with my son's cat. Two weeks ago, Mochi fell four floors from their apartment window. Miraculously, she suffered just a cracked pelvis, one snapped tooth and a fractured elbow, for which she has one leg in the full plaster cast shoulder to toes, and she's confined to a box. Yesterday, in the few nanoseconds they took their eyes off her, she wriggled her broken leg out of her cast. Yes, another emergency vet dash, and now she sports a new up-to-her-chin, chunky, unescapable cast. Mochi is not a happy cat. Letters to the Editor On Farming Diane Creed wrote in by email to say, Thank you for covering Minette Batter's speech at the annual NFU conference and also for providing the link to the full speech. I was impressed by her passion, knowledge and commitment to supporting our industry. But what impressed me most was her ability to connect with the audience and to speak directly to the concerns of farmers. She was engaging, thoughtful and genuinely passionate about the future of our industry. A letter from John Napier of Mir. The European Union is by no means perfect, but in leaving it, the UK really did cut off its own nose to spite its face. A promise by those behind this Brexit government that EU funds would be matched if we left has been broken. There's only so much repetition of the empty levelling up slogan that ministers in Rishi Sunak's administration can do to obscure that truth. Anyone in a rural community can see that farmers continue to bear the brunt of the empty promises and the shambles that is the current, non-existent, ELMS replacement. It was good to read George Hosford's column last month, sharing some positivity around the fact that at least some departments within DEFRA are keeping themselves up to date with soil health and environmental issues. Another letter on farming came by email from Angela Carrows. What good sense we can read in Minette Batter's statement to the NFU conference. 
She painted a stark picture, reminding the hall that input costs had jumped 50%, posing a threat to domestic food security and supply. We have the lowest egg production in nine years. Salad production is down to levels we haven't seen since the 80s, and many beef and sheep farmers are planning to reduce numbers. Let's hope the government were listening when she demanded they start putting meaningful, tangible and effective meat on the bones of the commitments it had made. What a shame that Therese Coffey couldn't show her the respect and professionalism she deserved. How embarrassing that a Wiltshire tenant farmer puts the Secretary of State to shame just in the simple matter of good old-fashioned manners. Walkers, be aware. I have read this week that the tick-borne encephalitis virus, TBEV, has been detected in Dorset. It's a very small risk, but better safe than sorry, as the consequences can be extremely serious. Most people are aware of tick bites causing Lyme disease, which is a treatable bacteria infection, but are seemingly not so aware that though the chances of contracting TBEV are low, the subsequent viral infection can be life-threatening. Obviously, it's a small risk, but worth covering up if spending time in long grasses. Using insect repellent, or the SAS's allegedly preferred repellent, Avon's Skin So Soft Moisturiser, and just keeping an eye out on your legs after a walk. And that's from Mary James of Shaftesbury. Annie G wrote in by email about dogs behaving badly. She says, I'm writing to express my frustration and concern regarding the behaviour of some dog owners on the trailway in Sturminster Newton. While I enjoy taking walks on the trailway and appreciate the ease of access to the beauty of the area, I've recently encountered several incidents involving poorly behaved dogs and their owners. On numerous occasions, I've encountered dogs running off-leash and causing a nuisance to other walkers and their dogs. Some dogs have even chased after cyclists, putting themselves and the cyclists in danger. In addition, I've seen owners not cleaning up after their dogs, which is both unsightly and unhygienic. As a dog owner myself, I understand the importance of exercise and time spent outdoors for our furry friends. However, it is the responsibility of the owner to ensure that their dog is under control and not causing disruption or danger to others. I urge all dog owners to please keep their dog on a lead and to clean up after them. It is important that we all respect the trailway and each other and ensure that it remains a safe and enjoyable place for everyone to visit. Congratulations, Laura and Courtney. It's great that you're on the shortlist with two other top regional publications. And this is for the NMA 2023's Regional Publication of the Year. I wish you both all the very best on your great achievement so far and hope you win. And that's by email from Sheila L. Over the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd of April, the Spring Countryside Show will open its gates at the showground at Motcombe. Unsurprisingly, the organisers are hoping for very good attendance this year for what is only the second Spring Countryside Show to be held in the same showground as the ever-popular Summer Gillingham and Shaftesbury Show. Giles Simpson, who's chairman of the show committee, gave me an idea of what visitors can expect. We've got Jonathan Marshall back with, the, with his fantastic Black Stallion, uh, the Dorset Axemen, we've got the steam engines, beekeepers, gun dogs, terror racing... Um, we've got the sheep show back. 
You, you better tell me a bit more about that in a moment because I think I saw that at the um, the, the Sherborne Castle Country Fair a few uh, yeah. years back. This is this is a, a kiwi yeah. who um, claims that his sheep can dance. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's a kiwi now or whether it's an Aussie. It has changed, but yeah, he basically calls the sheep out and they come up and stand in their right place. And I mean, certainly we had it last year and it went down really, really well. Um, whenever he was on, there was always a huge crowd in front of him. And it's very educational as well. He talks about the breeds and what they're good for. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's a really good, um, really good showpiece. Like, so very good, very interesting, very funny as well. So, so what else then, Charles? Uh, so we've got the Dorset Axemen back doing their log cutting with saws and the axes. Um, we've got the Terror Racer, which always goes down really, really well in the ring there. So that's always good fun when people bring their own dogs in and, and that always has a good uh, that always has good attendance that that um, is a very popular yeah, thing isn't it yeah. and and anybody any terrier owner can can uh, enter can they yeah yeah no anybody that's got a dog or a terrier on the day can enter and, and have a mickey taken out by the commentator and and um yeah no that's that's always got a is a big crowd puller yeah big crowd puller there's always a lot of people around the ring when that's happening so um yeah that can be quite exciting so yeah. so the, the more contestants the better for that one yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, I do remember Giles a few years ago. I entered um, my dog, who was a, a terrier, mixed breed terrier, at the Chevron Castle Country Fair, and um, instead of doing a, the speed back, uh, back and forth across <laughs> across the arena, he promptly got down and did a commando crawl on his belly. <laughs> so yeah. we, we certainly didn't win. <laughs> no, you certainly do see all sorts in in that ring when that's that's happening for sure. So. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, what else have we got? We've got uh, gun dog trials. We've got willow weaving, stick making, wood carving. Um, there's a garden area. There's obviously the, the farmyard area. So there's some sheep and, and other animals. There's some pigs this year, this year as well to, to look at. Uh, tractor and trailer ride, which went down really well last year. Um, that We don't charge for that. Um, and that had a queue all day, both days last year of people. And, and, and people were quite taken back by the fact that we weren't charging for that. But... Um, it's something that we feel that we can do to give something back. And, you know, the children love to sit up on a trailer and just drive, well, you only drive around the show round, but it's, um, it takes a quarter of an hour. But so. and, and, and what about the, the livestock side of things? Um, Is it going to be anything new this year? We've got some, we've got some pigs going to be there this year, which we haven't had before and we don't have at the main show. Um, so that should Is be... this Lily Smith's pigs? Yes. Yeah, so some pigs with hopefully some piglets. So that should be good. Um, we were trying. What we're trying to do is bring stuff to the spring countryside show that we may not have at the main show so pigs would be one um there obviously be the sheep show i'm not sure we got any goats this year we had goats last year and they were milking goats um and making it into ice cream are you a public allowed to do that at all have a uh, go have a no, goat milking you, a goat no, looking at looking at the way the goats were handling when they were being milked i don't think the public would want to have a go at those so no so yeah there are some more interests i mean trade stand wise uh we're we're up on trade stands this year we're probably about 20, 30% up on trade stands on what we were last year, so that's really good. I mean, last year we had a really good show for the first first time show last year. Um, we had good attendance. We had sort of between ten and 12,000 people over the two days. We're hoping for more this year. It's weather dependent, but, you know, fingers crossed we'll be, we'll be right. Well, spring weather's always dodgy, especially at the moment, is it not? <laughs> so yeah. you, you are, as you say, very much at the, at the mercy of the yeah. weather. However, so for a second-only show... Um, and early in the year, you think this is this is a, a good crowd puller? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, it's a totally different atmosphere to the main show in the summer. Um, it's much more relaxed. It's a different sort of 
I would say clientele maybe. It's more gardening in spring, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a different it's a different show, and I think you know it's it's a good show. Um, and like you say, we're the first one of the season, so fingers crossed we should we should have a good attendance. So you'll have the usual old favourites, um, like uh, um, you know, um, cake competitions, best cakes, and the best floral arrangements. Um, there wouldn't be cake competitions, and I don't think there's a floral competition. But there there are demonstrations, you know, cooking demonstrations in one of the, in one of the marquees, and but there's not so much competition really. You know, like the like the summer show would be where it's big on the competitions. The spring show isn't. You know, it's there for people to enjoy and 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 you know plenty of trade stands for for spring orientated gardening or patios or whatever you want to do you know it's um um that's where we're aiming at that and and a bit more on the education as well so hence why we're pushing the farmyard a bit and and that sort of thing this the cheap show you know it's all about educating people about the countryside and and you know the rural environment and and uh, Jonathan Marshall, I seem to remember having seen him at the Sherborne Castle Country Fair, does a rather spectacular display, a horseback mm. falconry display, which may possibly be the only one in the country. Uh, yeah, I think it is. He's um, he came last year, went down really, really. I mean, it's a stunning display. I didn't see all of it last year, but it's um, yeah. I mean, everybody that saw it was just taken back by it. You know, it's it, it really was a stunning display. Um, and we're very pleased that he was he was more than willing to come back this year, and he may well become a, an annual event where that's where he comes. You know, it's it's um, yeah to see his horsemanship and then to to have his falcon there fly is just just amazing, really. So um, all those sort of things. We have the yeah Jonathan Marshall is it's just a stunning display for sure. And and Charles, will you have much in the way of uh, of horse uh, events, anything like that, apart um, from Jonathan Marshall? No, not really. There's a bit of logging. Um, so we've got a couple of heavy horses with some log um, doing a display, but no, there's no show jumping or anything like that. You know, that's main for the the main summer show. So um, and and the heavy heavy horses are obviously at the main summer show. So you know, we're trying to keep it quite different. We don't want the two to be too similar. Slight so. slight challenge that for an agricultural show, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a slight challenge. Luckily, it's not my challenge. It's the it's the team in the office's challenge. But um, they're doing a great job, and yeah, it is a difficult challenge, but we're sort of adamant that that's what we want to do. We want to keep it two separate shows. You know, it's, it's two definitely separate shows, two different themes. Now, Giles, I'm sure you're supposed to be impartial, but I bet you have things that are your favourites. Yeah, I think um, I think the sheep show always makes me smile. I think the actually getting, you know, I've, I've dealt with sheep and worked with sheep, you know, through my life, and, and they're not easy to deal with. So to see somebody put 10 sheep up and get them to stand there and, do what he wants is, is amazing and, and the fact that he's quite a comical character. And, and finally Giles, since uh, there's so much more information and concern about the state of the environment these days, will you be dedicating part of the show to environmental matters and conservation? Yeah we are, we're looking at that, we're, we're looking at that for all the, for the, as a society in general, we're looking at how we can enhance the land that we own um, how we can be much better with our um, rubbish and recycling and everything. So we are, we're looking at that. So yeah, we're we're starting to bring a lot of that in. We're now got sign simple things like you know the signs that we've got for the spring show. They're not throw away now. They always used to be throw away, but now we can hold them. And we're just going to put a new sticker over the dates. And we're doing that for the main show as well. So as a society, and that's one thing I'm keen on is we've got to look at what the land we've got and how we can develop that to encourage more wildlife and, and be much better. So yes, it, it is part of what the remit for the society is going forward.
Giles Simpson giving a preview of what will be on offer at the Spring Countryside Show at the Motcombe Showground over the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd of April. I'm talking today with Andrew Livingston, a regular contributor to the BV magazine. Andrew, thank you for joining us. And let's talk about the Pool Harbour oil spill, if we may, which took place on the 26th of March. I know you've connected with quite a few of the key people in this regard. Just run us through what happened. It was fairly minor quantity, wasn't it, but potentially quite difficult. Well... When the news first broke, I think it was pretty horrific to hear about for pretty much everybody that that has an interest in both the marine ecology and the just the general wildlife ecology around Pool Harbour and some of the the areas of grassland around there. The initial reports, as I said, were hard of hearing, but then once a week had passed or so, it seemed that the oil spill wasn't as bad as initially had had been thought and the cleanup had gone particularly well so there was only reports of a few birds with oily patches on them nothing like when you saw the scenes of the bp oil spill out in where was that i think it was off the coast of mexico or something where birds were just covered in oil this was a lot more of a, a smaller scale but the the issue now it stands with the um with the mollusks and the oysters and cockles and what damage uh, is going to be had to them and the general marine biology underneath the surface of the water. And Pool Harbour is quite an important ecological site, isn't it? There's, there's quite a lot going on there. It is extremely, extremely important. It's a site of specific scientific interest, SSI, but it is also part of Europe's Ramsar site, which looks at wetlands, as well as all the special birds that are out there in their mating season at the moment. So a lot of bird life, which, as we know, never mixes well with oil spills, but we seem to have done okay on this one. Now, Perenco, who are the Anglo-French parent company, I believe, admitted liability quite early on this and have been reasonably open about the whole thing in as much that they've set up a helpline and they're giving compensation, I think, aren't they? But there's, there's some longer-term effects on shellfish producers, I think, isn't there? That is the, the one question that has been left unanswered, is, is what the damage to the shellfish of Pool Harbour is. I spoke to uh, Emily in my article, who she's a marine biologist in the area, and... She was extremely concerned about what the long-lasting damage is going to be on the on Pearl Harbor. Um, they're currently testing to see whether shellfish that are there can be sent off into market because at the moment all the businesses there are completely shut down. And I, I think there were some concerns as well with uh, particularly the oyster um, producers in as much that they've got a fairly limited window before the oysters become too big, I think, haven't they? Uh, yeah, they get too big for the plate was the phrase that, that I was given, which is something that you think, oh, the bigger the oyster, the better. But but they say that they just can't sell them when they get too big. Businesses and restaurants aren't interested in piling on massive oysters onto their plate. It's that unforeseen circumstance, isn't it, that, that tends to creep out of these things that we don't immediately uh, think of. But in the longer term, it seems like they've dodged a bullet but we're in for the long haul in terms of monitoring the effects over the coming years by the look of it yeah the birds seem to be fine but the damage to the fish and the seaweeds and the seagrass 
it's it's gonna it's gonna take a long long time to figure out what the damage has been. Fingers crossed, it will never happen again. But unfortunately, when you have a oil plant right next to such an important marine ecology, this can happen. Absolutely. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much for talking to us. Happy as a pig in muck is how you might possibly describe Lily Smith. She does indeed get up close and personal with her rather special rare breed pigs that go by the name of Oxford Sandy and Blacks, or OSBs for short. To say she dotes on them may not be wide of the mark, and she's certainly determined to do her bit to keep this pig breed flourishing and increasing in number. Lily and her farmer husband Morgan have a seven-acre small holding outside Shillingston, and what should it be called but Ham Farm? I asked Lily if OSBs were an especially rare breed. Um, it's not the rarest breed. It's actually um, getting more and more popular, and it has actually grown in size in the last 10 years. But it's still um, under 400 sows, I think it is at the moment, or it might be 406 now sows. So that it's rare, but the, I think the land race actually are rarer. But they do need to be, all of them need to be kind of championed. Otherwise, they can instantly just go if they're not looked after. Absolutely. Now, I, I understand that actually um, the, the OSB is rarer than the giant panda. Yes, it is. I um, I heard that through someone else who had saddlebacks. Um, and I looked at it. I was like, well, saddlebacks and OSBs are very similar in numbers. And I was like, that means they're all rarer than the, the giant panda because there are over 2,000 in um, the wild and even more in captivity of the giant panda so yeah OSBs are rarer than giant panda and so are saddlebacks and the other breeds <laughs> so with that now um, so why did the breed become rare in the first place well when well after world war ii if you think about how um a farming changed people focused more on productivity as in quick turnaround for food larger um litter sizes so things like the OSB, they take longer to finish off because they're a rarer breed. They're slower growing and they can put more fat down than some of the commercial breeds who are bred more for muscle gain. But with the fat, you get taste. So there is there is trade-offs. But the OSB are really good for being outside. They love being outside, rootling around, doing exactly what they should do as a pig. And that's how they slowly grow. We send ours off between seven and nine months old for meat, whereas a commercial pig can be sent off anywhere between five to six months. Um, and that can be also bacon weight at that age. So whereas if we want bacon weight, we have to keep them on to nearly a year old to get the larger kind of um, medallions, etc. But the reason why they are rarer is because people weren't focused. They, they weren't the money makers. They weren't what you could turn around quickly and and get a huge amount of meat from. And people would often do crossbreeds to try and make a better combination, which is that's how, how breeds have come along. Things have been bred and bred and bred. But that means that the pure breeds aren't kept. So back in the 1980s, um, a guy called Mr. Sheppy, he really championed it and kind of got the herd book started. So if it wasn't for people like him who focused on keeping the breed alive, it would never have kept stayed, stayed on. It wouldn't exist today. So I imagine, Lily, in a way that um, a, a commercial, a, a large-scale pig breeder, I think of the ones that are near Stonehenge, for instance, yeah. which I'm sure you must know, um, that they would perhaps uh, uh, regard what you're doing and, and other rare breeds, uh, uh, pig breeders are doing as being kind of playing in a way. Yes, it is in some ways, you could say, because the reason why I have my pigs is not for the meat production. That is obviously a byproduct of it. 
but I am doing it to improve the breed and to to keep to secure the breed. If I keep I keep five bloodlines of the females and two of the male bloodlines, and because I keep them and I am focusing on breeding them well and making sure there's nothing no um, intergenetics, then I can then sell on some breeding stock. As I said to um, Tracy the other day, I don't actually get very many I can register each year because you have to be very careful on what you register and what you don't. But obviously the off the off side of that is I get a lot of meat wieners. So either we keep them on ourselves and bring them on and sell them as pedigree pork, or I sell them to other smallholders who want to bring on a few for themselves for their own kind of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ple- pleasure? Yes, for their own pleasure. They, they, they then know exactly where their meat has come from because they have reared them, they have watched them, and I think a lot of people are coming back to the, re- to the whole thing of if they can see where their food's come from, they can understand it's had a good life, they feel better about it. They, It's the kind of... It's the, it's the history of where your food has come from. It's, it's really quite important, I think. And, and uh, so much easier, of course, to keep track of uh, a small-scale production yes. such as yours. Yeah. Now, when, when it, you, you mentioned uh, pedigree a moment ago... Um, does this mean that, uh, since you're not you're not a large scale producer, does this mean that the the meat prices, the prices from your pork, uh, are higher? Uh, they are. So um, the national pig price at the moment, I think, is if you're going to buy, it, if you were say a, a Tesco or something, is two pound eighty three a kilo. Obviously, you then have processing on top of that. Whereas That's very I sell cheap, my, isn't it? Yes, it is. I then sell mine on an average of between eight and ten pound a kilo. By the time, it's, but that includes sausages and everything. So things have been processed, and I would even say that I am too cheap if you really look at the big scale of cost. But I have to weigh it out between what people are prepared to pay and making sure I don't lose money. We don't. Our pigs don't take technically make us any money. They can cover their costs, and that I consider as a good thing. But they are not what actually pays us a wage. We have our other farm business, which is our cattle, and that's how we stay going. But I keep the pigs as a passion of mine. It is I want to champion the breed, and I want to make sure that in my lifetime I keep them going. So that that's why I keep them. Now I, I notice, Lily, that you have named your pigs. So does this make yes. it difficult to part with them, or are these the one the ones that you're named? This is just the breeding females, is it? Yes, I only name the breeding stock. So my boys have names, and my girls have names. My boars and my my sows, but none of the ones I keep on for meat have any names. They have an ear tag and a number, which correlates with the litter they're born in, but they do not have a name. Yes, but there so, must still be, since you haven't got lots of them, uh, this being a rare breed, um, it, it must still be a wee bit tough, I imagine, to um, say goodbye to them. Yeah, I think the day that you don't have any feelings taking an animal to slaughter is a day you should stop doing it. I, I, I care where my meat has come from. I care that they have had a good life. They've been outside, they've been in the mud, they've sunbathed, they have rootled around, they have played, and then they get taken to the small laboratory we go to which is cns and holness they have a very calm journey they go to the Learage, they're nice and calm and they're all, it's they're treated with respect and some people might not understand who don't eat meat but i personally feel if my anything i eat has had a good life and been treated with respect then it is it is good it's, it's a positive thing now you, you you mentioned the fact that they are more ha- more than happy to be outside pretty much all the year which must make them a little bit like their ancestors the wild boar Yes, well, they have all the genetics. If you look at pigs these days, do have genetics back to the wild boar. But um, the OSB, which is also known as the plum pudding, they have an orangey um, baseline coat. 
and they have their black spots on top, which means during the summer, obviously they need shade, but they are less susceptible to sunburn and things because they are more designed for this climate. And they get a woollier coat over the winter. Like my boar, when he um, sheds his winter coat because summer, he goes from this big teddy bear, I always say, to quite a sleek man. <laughs> so it, they do they do adapt to the, the, the climate and they are well adapted to it. So much better adapted to living out of doors um, and being exposed to sunlight than uh, the, the modern breeds where they're all, yes. all pink and susceptible to skin cancer. Exactly. Whereas us, although we have to do wallows for them because they need, because obviously they don't sweat, they need the mud to help control their temperature, and they do have shaded areas to help them control the temperature. They they love it. I mean, the amount of times I I go outside in the, on a sunny day and all my pigs are led out sunbathing because they're like, this is the best. <laughs> now, you're, Lily, you're almost a rare breed yourself, aren't you? Since there are, uh, I understand, just 135 of you breeders in this country to raise the um, the OSBs. There are, but there's we've got a really good um, couple of groups. There's the OSP group society, and there's the OSP group charity, and both of them champion the breed. So you can get help from other breeders. And when I first started, I had a look into the, the British Pig Association, which holds our herd book. They do a survey every year of where the bloodlines are, and we can then communicate with the other other people who have different bloodlines and. I bought my boar from North Wales. One of my only one of my boars my ever bought came from down the road, but it means I can bring different bloodlines in, and we all know where each other's located, which means we can inquire when that someone else have a certain bloodline. And although there's a few of us, we work together, and that's the most important thing, I think. So your your piggy passion takes you all over the country, then? Yeah. Well, luckily, I managed to um, find a transporter who brought my boar down from North Wales when he was only eight weeks old. Um, so he travelled down and I, he was brought down to me on another journey so that helped but we have had the OSB, OSB pig charity they have a genetic spread allowance so you can, if it's within a certain mileage and stuff you can claim back a, a, a kind of donation to your travel costs if you're bringing lines, rare lines between one bit and another that aren't between those areas so it's, it's really quite impressive actually how invested people are in the breed even if they're because in this charity there's also people who just keep them as meat wieners and they focus on making sure they only buy pedigree meat wieners because by eating them and only buying pedigree you support the breed even if you all you are going to do them is eat them and not breed them if we didn't eat them we couldn't breed them if that makes sense absolutely and but but it must be lovely being being part of a a small group of rare breeds enthusiasts I, i imagine you've formed some good friendships have you yeah, um, there's a lady called Kim Brook, who is the one of the trustees of the uh, Oxitania Black Pig Group, and she is so helpful. Any question you have, she's she's there, and it's a community. There's a there's a Facebook group, and we post pictures on every day. And there's some people up in Scotland, North North England, and I feel like I know them, even some of them I haven't met in person, because we share the same passion and we talk about things and we have questions and we share information, and it's lovely. Now, and now, Lily, your your pigs do have other roles, I understand, aside from breeding and providing sausages, um, like being very useful, wildlife-friendly mini bulldozers. Uh, yes, so we sold um, three gilts from my South Chelsea's litter in November to the Countryside Restoration Trust, um, or Re- Regenerative Trust now, that Beer Marsh Farm in Shillingstone, and they have a nine-acre paddock they wanted to turn over so they can loosen the ground, get some more wildflower but biodiversity in and we went and had a conversation with them and I said this big of an area you'll need more pigs and they went well, we don't think we want that many pigs so they've done a smaller area they bought three gilts off us I spoke to them about 
because I got to heat them for meat at the end. I spoke to them all about the process around here where you can take them for the abattoir and the butcher. And I went to visit them again last week or the week before. And it's amazing how much they have turned over strips. So they're working together, these three, and they're obviously finding something under the ground, but they are literally working methodically around this area, this three-acre paddock, and turning bits over and doing exactly what they wanted. So Elaine, um, who was the manager there, she is delighted with them. <laughs> and she's got a team of volunteers called the Pig Watch who um, go every day to make sure, and sometimes twice a day, to keep an eye on the pigs, feed them, and I think apparently it's the most popular thing they've done. I, I, there is quite nothing quite like a piggy snout to to um, turn the soil over, is there? No, they they are methodical with it as well. It's quite impressive. <laughs> I just think if you use animals for the natural but, instincts, they they can they can the biodiversity of any area will be increased if everything is working in harmony. Then that's what really needs to be done with farming. I think these days. And some of your pigs, uh, finally, Lily. Some of your pigs uh, are going to be appearing for the first time with you, of course, at the Spring Countryside Show at Motcombe in a couple of weeks' time. Yes, they are. We've got Gladys, um, our sow, who is due on Thursday. So she'll have some two-week-old piglets with her. And I'm also going to take one of my young wieners who I've I've marked for breeding stock with me just to show what I look look for in a pig. And we also might take one of my um, other sows with us. We've also got Seb Saddlebacks coming to the show, and he's him and his mum and his brother and his dad are bringing some of their herd which are lovely saddlebacks and they do a lot of showings so they're very knowledgeable and a lady and her husband wowie and paul dunning who've also got some osbs are bringing one of their sows with some piglets so there should be lots of the public to look at and really hope we can educate people on more than just a pink pig oxford sandy and black rare breed pig breeder lily smith And that's all for this first episode of the April 2023 BV podcast. We'll be back again next week with the next episode. So until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. (laughs) 